Turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 6 this morning, Exodus and the 6th chapter. That's where we're going to start in just a minute. Before we read the scripture, I want to ask, what is your view of Moses this morning as we approach the book of Exodus? Um, How many in this room have seen the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? Let's see your hands. Ah, yes. Almost all the old folks and not quite so many of the younger folks. Well, for the younger folks, how many have you seen The Prince of Egypt, an animated Anybody seen this? Back in 1998, DreamWorks. Um, We've all probably seen one or the other of those. Uh, We've read Bible stories, maybe to our kids or as kids, that have given us some conception of who this Moses is and what role he actually plays. As a matter of fact, most of these movies and even many Bible story books Make Moses the hero or central person in the story. Um, you get this idea that uh, Moses is this great leader, and then we paint the story of human freedom over re- oppression, which is very appealing to us as Americans. And Moses is like some combination of George Washington's leadership and Abraham Lincoln's passion for liberty and Martin Luther King Jr.'s concern for the oppressed, all rolled into one. Well, the elements that those movies and the many books that recount about Moses is that Moses is not the hero. He is not the star of the Exodus. Um, You can definitely say he plays a supporting role. But God is the hero. God is the star. He is the one doing this. He is the one delivering his people. He is the one raising up Moses. To even do so. Exodus chapter 6, look at me starting with look with me starting in verse 5. God talking to Moses says, Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant, my promise. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He doesn't leave much doubt, does he? I will do it. He will use human beings as means to get it done. But he will do it. Why is he doing it? To make his name known. To make his name great. To bring glory to God. To bring glory to himself. I have a four-point outline for you this morning as we work our way through the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. Point number one, God's people cry out for help. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 23. Point number two, 
God hears and remembers His promise. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 to chapter 3, verse 10. Point three, God is glorified in Moses' weakness. God is glorified in Moses' weakness. Chapter 3, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 23. And point number four, God's people believe and worship. Chapter 4, verse 27 to verse 31. To give you a sense of the the time frame for the entire book of Exodus, chapter 1 covers approximately 400 years. 400 years. Chapter 2 shrinks that down to 80 years. Chapter 2 covers 80 years. Chapter 3 through 40 of the book of Exodus, the next 38 chapters, covers little more than one year. A little more than one year. So we will see a progression in time as we work through even this morning. Let's start with point number one. Appropriately, God's people cry out for help. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. So how did we get here? How is it that God's people are slaves in Egypt under the hand of a wicked Pharaoh? What is the situation? Exodus 1, verse 1, follow along with me as I read. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel." So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, 
Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. See, the Israelites came to Egypt as a place of refuge. When Joseph brought his father Jacob and his 12 brothers and their whole family, 70 people in total, when they came to Egypt, they came because there was a drought and a famine in the land of Canaan. They were going hungry. And Joseph had risen to a place in Egypt where he's like the prime minister. He's like the governor who's in charge of everything. And he invites his family to come through a whole bunch of circumstances we don't have time to get into today. He invites them to come and settle in the land of Goshen, in a good land where they will be fed and cared for and where God will grow them from this group of about 70 people into a nation of a million or more. They were fruitful and multiplied in the land. And as they did so, the Egyptians began to be fearful. Maybe there's becoming too many of them. Maybe our immigration policy isn't working so well. What can we do about that? Well, they decided to oppress them, to turn them into slaves, to hold them down, to push them down through oppression, to put them under Pharaoh's thumb, and to use them to build great store cities for them, to store their agricultural products, and to build many other things as well and to use them in the fields to raise their flocks and to grow their crops. But this was not a gentle slavery. As a matter of fact, let's look at verse 13 of chapter 1 once again. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This first form of oppression has turned the lives of the Israelites in Egypt from a place of paradise, a good place, to a trap. They are now trapped. They are in one of the most powerful nations in all the earth. And they are the, under the subjugation of one of the most powerful kings of all the earth. But they're still growing. They're still multiplying. As a matter of fact, the more they get oppressed, it seems the more they multiply. God is doing a miracle amongst the Hebrews. They are multiplying in spite of the world they live in and the pressure they're under. So, Pharaoh decides to add a second level of oppression 
and tragedy to their lives. The planned and targeted infanticide, the killing of Hebrew male infants. Yet even at this, God sovereignly, graciously is protecting his people. God is actively caring for them and protecting these infant boys from death through the work of the midwives. Now, this was not news to God that this would happen, that this oppression, that this slavery. As a matter of fact, God had foretold the slavery and oppression of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 400 years before. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15 in your Bibles. Genesis and chapter 15. Genesis 15, we're going to go to verse 12. Let's read about Abram, whose name was later changed by God to Abraham. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now the Lord said to Abram, now keep in mind, at this point, Abram doesn't have any children. And he's getting old. He and his wife, Sarah, are getting past the age of childbearing. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, this sovereign, personal God is actually, is actively engaged in the lives of his people. This is a God who is bringing his plan and his purpose in redemption through history to fruition. God told us in Genesis 1 that he was the sovereign God because he created everything out of nothing. After sin and death entered the world through the sin of Adam, God graciously promises a Savior to deal with our sin in Genesis 3.15. Then God judges the world for sin through a flood. But he graciously saves Noah and his family through it. Seeing the pervasiveness of sin in the whole world, God now calls one man, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, and promises Abraham he will have many descendants, and that through Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. This descendant of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, is Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.8, The gospel was preached beforehand through Abraham. The gospel of Christ that will bring blessing upon the whole earth. This promise is passed down to his son Isaac, to his grandson Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel. And then we have the amazing story of Joseph who said to his brothers after they shipped him off as a slave to Egypt, never be seen or heard from again, even telling his father that he was dead, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, 
but God meant it for good. Now God brings Moses on the scene. And so starts another chapter in his redemptive plan and its continued unfolding. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 2. Let's continue as we take up the story of Moses. Moses enters the scene. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son whom she saw, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. God guides the events around the birth and upbringing of Moses to not only spare his life, but also to have his real mother nurse him and even get paid for it. And God providentially works through the diligent efforts of Moses' mother and sister and brings Moses into the family of Pharaoh as an adopted son. Amazing the way God is working through these circumstances to bring Moses along. But now we come to a turning point in Moses' life. Exodus 2, verse 11. Moses is now 40 years of age. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. 
Well, we find out that our hero Moses is a murderer, don't we? Matter of fact, he knows what he's about to do is wrong because what does he do? He looks around, makes sure nobody's watching. Okay. Then what does he do after he murders him? He buries him in the sand. He's covering it up. Now, I have some sympathy for Moses. He clearly knows these are his people. He clearly wants to deliver them, at least in some small measure, from the oppression, from the ruthless rule over them. But he is a murderer. And in trying to battle the oppression of his own people and defend them in the faith of ruthless burdens, he has killed an Egyptian and covered it up. He realizes his own people are even ready to turn on him, doesn't he? Once this Egyptian tells him, who are you? Evidently, that, that, once the Hebrew tells him, who are you? He clearly is afraid for his life. And evidently, this Hebrew went and told somebody. Because Pharaoh wants to kill him. So Moses is now an outlaw. He runs away. He is an exile, an outcast from not only the privileged Egyptian life that he knew at the highest levels of Egyptian society, but he's even an outcast from his own people. He can't even be with them. His attempt to help a few slaves leaves him condemned and rejected. He is nowhere as a deliverer. He is a failure, now living in a nowhere place. And at the age of 40, he starts a new and, we would have to admit, a very humbled life. Living hundreds of miles from his old life of privileged status, living in the desert as a nomad shepherd, presiding over almost nothing, a few sheep that he's in charge of. What Moses doesn't know is that God is sending him off for 40 years to prepare him to be his messenger to Pharaoh and the leader of the nation Israel. See, Moses thinks he's at his retirement job, but God's still working with him. He's still working on him. Yet the real hero of the story of God's history is about to step in. Look with me at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. They are praying for God to remember His promise that He gave to Abraham to give this people a land to deliver them from the oppression of the Egyptians, to free them from bondage. In a difficult situation, the people of Israel are turning to God. How do we do in that situation? What's the lesson for us? All of us suffer in one way or another. Ebbs and flows through life. 
What do you do with it when it happens? When hard things and bad circumstances come, where do you turn? Do you let trials drive you to Christ? Does it drive you to cry out to Him, to pray to Him? Or do you flee? Do you run away? Do you look for something else to solve that problem or that issue for you, to deal with your suffering? Let the cries, let the prayers of the Hebrews be a lesson to us as we examine our hearts in the trials of life. Point number two, God hears and remembers His promise. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew The cries, the prayers of Israel were heard by God and remembered. When God remembers, it is not Him passively calling something to mind. Rather, it involves God carrying out and responding to what He just called to mind. He is going to take action on what He remembers. You might think this would involve God bringing up, a, bringing a more sympathetic ruler to the throne of Pharaoh, right? I mean, the king just died. How about a new Pharaoh? Maybe one more committed to democratic, promise, promise, democratic processes and human rights. That's what we need. That's what humans would think. I mean, when we have problems as a country, what do we do? We look for a new president, right? We look for new leadership. Huh. It's not what God has in mind here. Or maybe we need an insurrection. Maybe we need a great leader to arise up, a military commando to get all these Israelites battling Pharaoh in the same direction. That's what we need. Well, evidently that isn't what God has in mind. You see, God has a pattern of working in unexpected ways. Ways like having His Son come to earth as a baby, born in a humble state, of a virgin in a stable placed in a manger. Like having Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come not to rule and reign as a conquering king over the Romans, but one who comes to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the sins of his people, to free his people from the slavery of sin. So God raises up this one, Moses, who will deliver his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt in an unexpected way and at an unexpected time. As Moses has now been 40 years in Midian, 40 years away from his people, pretty well settled into his old age at 80 years old. He's probably looking for the easier days of life, not the more challenging ones. Read with me. God's call to action in Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses! And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God has seen the affliction of His people. He has heard their cries, and He springs into action. Notice who is going to deliver them in verse 8. It is going to be God. God will deliver them. And at this point, I think Moses is amazed at what's happening. He thinks this is great that God's responding to this. Isn't it a wonderful thing? But then God has one more sentence to add to his statement. Verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I would imagine it took Moses' breath away. And as you will see over the next 20 verses, Moses really likes the word but in response to this. But, 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 but. Four times in the next 20 verses, Moses will tell God, but well if God didn't have Moses attention before he surely got it now this brings us to point three God is glorified in Moses's weakness Exodus chapter 3 verse 11 to 423 Moses will now proceed to give God five reasons why he shouldn't be the one He's going to try to convince God somebody else needs to do this job. And he introduces four of his five suggestions with but. The first objection of Moses starts in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, after all, what is Moses' position in life at this point? What, what did we just read that he was doing? He's keeping his father-in-law's flocks in the desert of Midian at 80 years old. He just took them to Mount Horeb, probably one of his play, favorite places. He's probably been there a bunch of times. They got good grass and good water over there. It's a nice place to relax as a shepherd. 
And who's he going to go talk to? Who's he going to confront and try to get him to convince to leave over a million people to let him go? Um, one of the people that leads to one of the most powerful nations on earth. The person who is king over that people, over that nation. I can understand Moses asking that question. What's God's response? Verse 12. God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Notice God doesn't say if you pull the people out of Egypt, if they let go. No, they are going to be let go. This will happen. But really key, that statement of God, I will be with you. Moses' second objection starts in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, He will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now that's what I call an answer to objection. God lays out for Moses what is going to happen. Now, interestingly, when Moses asks this question, what is your name? Who should I tell them sent me? Moses is not asking God who he is. He knows that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses is not confused. He doesn't think that, well, this God might be one of the hundreds of gods that the Egyptians worship or maybe one of the thousands of gods that the people in the surrounding nations worship. No, he knows this is the one true God. 
But rather what Moses is asking is, what is the character and the qualities, God, that is going to help me in this circumstance and in this situation? What can I tell them about you? And in verse 14, God says, I am who I am. Or another translation says, I will be who I will be. Here God is building off his answer from verse 12 to Moses when he says to Moses, I will be with you. Now when I hear I will be with you, it reminds me of somebody else's words. The words of Christ. The very last sentence of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus tells his disciples, I will be with you always. I will be with you always. Jesus is echoing the voice of God here in Exodus 3. I will be with you always. God is saying to Moses, I am truly He who exists. I am He who is powerfully present then and there in every situation, specifically in the situation I am sending you into before Pharaoh. And then in verse 15, God expands on this answer. God says in verse 15, I am the God who was present in the past with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know me. I am the God of the present, the one who is sending you into the presence of Pharaoh to redeem my people. I am the God of the future. He will be with you forever throughout all generations. This is the character and quality of this God. Now, for those of you that have been Christians for a long time and have been through trials and struggles and sufferings, my guess is if we ended this service right now and you turned and asked the person next to you, has God been faithful in your life? You would be able to tell them about miracles that God has done in providing for you in some of the darkest moments of life. Because Jesus is with us always. He is always there for us. He is the I Am. He is the ever-present God who is always powerfully with us even when we don't feel like it. He has been that God with the slaves in Egypt for these 400 years. He is that God for us in the midst of trial and suffering. When things are at their darkest of the dark, when you're stretched as far as you can imagine being stretched, His grace is there for you. Moses' third objection. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. 
that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. He tells Moses to take water from the Nile, from this river in which Hebrew infant boys have been drowned in, and pour it on the ground in front of Pharaoh as a sign, and turn that water into blood. Pharaoh would understand that sign. All those watching would understand the sign. This is the blood of the children of Israel that you have murdered. Objection number four. Verse 10. But, Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made your man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Brings us to verse 13. The fifth objection. And this is really the objection. But he said, but Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Anybody but me. Not me. I've been there before. I'm old. Things didn't go well before. Can't you just leave me alone? Please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Notice, God has graciously already sent Aaron to meet Moses. And he hasn't seen Aaron for 40 years. Verse 15. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And the Holloway edition is now get going. Okay? God's not asking for any more input. Go on your mission. 
March, Moses. Look down at verse 21. God has a few other pieces of information to pass along to Moses before he sends him on his way. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This wicked Pharaoh will not let the people go. As a matter of fact, God tells Moses that when you first go back, it's going to look like you've got another failed mission in progress. Pharaoh is not going to let them go. He tells Moses, like many of the prophets of the Old Testament, you can look forward to setbacks. You can look forward to problems and doubts. They're coming your way. Then verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my chosen people. Israel is the one that is first before me. They are precious to me. They are mine. They are not yours, Pharaoh. They are mine. They are my firstborn son. Verse 23, And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Get that? God is saying they are no longer going to serve you. They are going to serve me. Now you notice a little earlier in chapter 3, God says, please let my people go for three days into the wilderness and then come back. Well, let me tell you, God's plan isn't for them to come back. They're going to go and they're going to serve Him. And Pharaoh's going to let them go. And then in verse 23, he tells Moses to deliver a threat for me. And I say to you, this is what Moses is to say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This isn't just any firstborn son. This is the heir to the throne of Egypt. This is the chosen son. The one who will rule over the most powerful nation on the earth. Can you imagine what Pharaoh will be thinking? What is going through his mind when Moses is going to deliver this message? Who are you, Moses, to be ordering the most powerful man on earth to do anything? You two old men in whose army? You can just picture him laughing on the inside. What do you mean? Well, this threat of death serves as a solemn reminder for God that will be brought out and actually happen with the last plague, the angel of death, and the slaying of the Passover lamb, and the application of the blood over the doors of the Israelites 
so that the angel of death will pass over the Israelite homes and their firstborn sons will be saved. While Pharaoh's son and all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians will perish. This is a picture, this is a reminder that the deliverance, that the rescue, that salvation is only accomplished through the shedding of blood. God is giving us a picture of the sacrifice of His Son that will come in 1,450 years. In accordance with the perfect plan and promise of God. That brings us to point number four. God's people believe and worship. Chapter 4, verse 27. Notice Moses' brother Aaron, who he hasn't seen, is coming to meet him. Verse 27, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. At this point in time, the leaders of God's people, the elders of Israel, and the Israelites themselves are still enslaved to God, in e- enslaved to the Egyptians in Egypt. But God has brought them through the oppression and has brought them to the point where they believe in God's provision of a deliverer and bow down and humbly worship God. He has heard their cries. He has remembered His promise. Now He is going to deliver. God will sovereignly provide by His own hand an unlikely deliverer for His people Israel to free them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. You see, we see in Moses and in the story of the deliverance of the Israelites in these first four chapters of Exodus a faint reflection of the ultimate deliverer of Jesus Christ. Those of us who have believed in Christ, who is God's ultimate deliverer, have already been freed from the penalty and power of our sin by trusting in Christ, in His righteous life, in His death on the cross, as the full payment for the penalty we deserve. We see Christ as our substitute, hanging on the cross and paying the penalty that we deserve to pay, the penalty of death. Yet like the Israelites at the end of chapter 4, who are waiting for the complete freedom from bondage in Egypt, we too are waiting for the glory of Jesus Christ to be revealed when He returns to bring us home to dwell with Him in glory. Until that time, we are called to cry out to Him in the midst of trial and suffering. We are called to pray to Him, to earnestly bring to Him those sufferings, those trials in our lives that cause us to struggle so. 
because he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who is always there. And as Christ said, I will always be with you. To him be the glory, for he is the hero of the story. Let's pray. Almighty Father, it is amazing to see how you, as the great God of all time, of the universe, the great God who created everything, to which we owe our very existence, to who even sustains our breath right now, is interested, even not just interested, but intensely and personally interested in the lives of your chosen people. Be they your chosen people who were living as slaves in Egypt or your chosen people who have gathered here at Omaha Bible Church corporately as a body of believers to worship you. I pray, Father, that as individuals, we would acknowledge before you our weakness. For we are weak and insufficient just as Moses is in his own power. It is only through your power, Lord, through the power of Christ, that we can live lives that are pleasing to you and that we can work our way through the journey of life with its sufferings and trials. But not only for us as individuals, Father, do I pray, but for us as your church. I pray that as a church, Lord, we would acknowledge before you that we are weak and insufficient, that apart from you, we can do nothing, that we must have your power, Father, and we take comfort to know that you are with us always, that Jesus is there, that our union with Christ is such, and that the power of the Holy Spirit is such that, Lord, you are building your church as you promised. In all these things, we are thankful, Father, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross on our behalf, who paid the penalty for sin once and for all for us. Amen.